forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. I'm Alice Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm humbly pleading with you to leave us an Apple review. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm wearing a hat. You are wearing a hat. Yeah. You should have said leave us a Spotify review. Spotify. I've never looked at Spotify reviews. I do. I know, I can't figure out if you can leave comments, but you can see ratings. Oh, okay. You can't leave a comment, but you can leave ratings. But you also have to listen to like five episodes before the before the wow. like oh, shocking. But I okay, I'm someone who I constantly when I'm going to listen to something, I see how many ratings it has. And oh so, my god! I know, but I, I, it's, it's really, a, yeah. Wow. Do y'all want to read one? Oh, let's. Yeah, read I was going to say, let's read them. Oh wait, can I first share a hilariously mean comment that was left on our recent YouTube video, which like it's I know I shouldn't be promoting mean comments, but this one actually made me laugh out loud. I think I know which one it is. <laughs> The only one who's aged well here is the dog. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I saw that one. I thought it was very funny. It's so mean. I thought but it was extremely so funny. funny. And I'll be honest, Sugar has aged exceptionally. I saw another one that was like, I can't believe that dog is still alive. What? She's yeah. Only 10. I know. She's I know. She has half a life ahead of her. I know. Okay, I'm gonna read reviews. Is that okay? Yes, please. Five stars, best Michelle. Getting lost in JBU. These two are so entertaining that I forget the ads are ads and accidentally listen through them when I definitely mean to skip ahead. Incredible. <laughs> That's very nice. Okay, here's a nice one. One FOMO says, we love it to see it. For me, this podcast is the definition of true partnership. Been a longtime listener. I've loved learning and growing with you both and Melissa Hart. It's like having an extra set of besties handy when I need to hear about someone else's life instead of my own for a little while. For that content alone, I would happily give five stars. But I'd be remiss in failing to mention all the diverse topics discussed with outside guests, the incredibly creative and hilarious revealing game show segments, the dogs slash relationship goss slash hot tea spilling, and everything else this podcast brings to the table. Love y'all so much. Keep doing great things. Oh, that's so nice. This is a good one. Lindsay2317. Hey, so I might be a little high, but I feel like in the YouTube sketch videos, the apartment is like glowing white in what I imagine heaven is like. Anywho, congrats on the cool name, Gabe. I think this is a great opportunity to spell it Gabe, G-A-Y-B-E. Thanks. Nails emoji. <laughs> and my favorite are when people clearly leave reviews while high. Yep. And so we encourage it. We're here for it. But also sober reviews as well. Yeah, people seem to love the Reddit episodes. I like it and it's changed my life. Love the random Reddit episodes. Allie Klein. Yay! I've always thought that it would be so funny if the thing that blew up for us was the Reddit episodes <laughs> after yeah. like almost a decade of creating content that we try so hard on and then the Reddit episode. People love to hear us just chit chat. <laughs> they love it. Well, if you are like, what do you what do you mean? What do I love? This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games and brutal honesty. Huge trigger warning for this episode upcoming because we're interviewing a longtime listener who reached out with an incredible topic idea. Allison Herman is going to be here to talk about suicide awareness and prevention. So if this is not the interview for you and you want to skip the interview portion, that is a-okay. Please do that and take care of yourself if you need to. But if you are looking for, for more information about this really complex and emotional topic, 
I think she does such a wonderful job of giving helpful Mm -hmm. information and advice and, and just, you know, I think it can feel like an overwhelming subject, not even know where to start with. And, and I'm, I'm really glad we had the conversation. Yeah. It's really, it's a very, very good interview. And later we're going to be talking all about vaginal health gummies. I literally wrote back, Allison, what the fuck are vaginal health gummies? And you said, exactly. Right. So we are going to be, we are not promoting vaginal health gummies. Can you imagine? We are doing the exact opposite. So stick around for that. But first we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous. Unknown. Cool. I love to add unknown to the anonymous. It really makes a mystery. Yeah, because we don't know where they're from. I'm forcing Melissa to have intense eye contact with me right now. You like it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, anonymous. So now, now she's glaring at me. Yeah, I, she's going to. She's act- won the game. Right. She wins, obviously. <laughs> okay. Anonymous writes, Hey, Allison and Gabe, I hope my email. Wait, this kills me. It's okay, so funny. It's so funny. She, they go, Hey, Allison and Gabe, I hope my email finds you well. Just pleasantries. I hate receiving emails. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering if you could give me any advice on how to know when you're in love or when to know if there is a potential for love. Being a Muslim, I've never dated in the traditional sense. I mean, the best way to describe it outside of the culture would probably be to say I've been in situationships without any benefits, LOL. Pure texting and vibes. Seeing them only when I'd see them anyway, like at university or at work. I've always stopped myself from becoming emotionally invested before because I didn't want to get my heart broken before I was ready to get married. I'm now 24 and expected to find a husband. I go on dates with potential men and I find myself kind of enamored in the moment agreeing with things they want out of a potential life, even when I don't necessarily want to do any of that. Once I'm home, I'm kind of disgusted at the idea of everything they want and the idea of marrying them. So I say no to meeting them again. Is this just the downfall of meeting people so inorganically? There's always this notion of finding someone and growing into love, Mm. but I'm just so scared of opening up and falling in love, embarrassing, only to find out once we're married, they're a completely different person. Maybe this is too niche of a struggle and I should just get on with it. And I hope I grow into love a la Caitlin and Ned Stark. But I was hoping some great minds of our generation, you, could offer any pockets of wisdom of when you know someone might be right for you. Love you. Bye. Wow. Okay. So this is fascinating. Here's what jumped out to me is that the only example that you gave of love that mirrors what you're looking for is fictional. And I think sometimes when you meet someone, all you have is the idea of them. I had this a lot, which I think like really was a a roadblock for me, was that a lot of my ideas of relationships in high school and college came from movies and TV and how things are supposed to be and look there. And the way that manifested for me was like sexually, but it can also be sort of romantically where you're sort of like, this is what it should be like, because this is what I've seen. And then when you get into the reality of it, like when you are on these dates with these guys, you're, you can find yourself enamored. You can find yourself thinking of all these possible futures and what this could look like. And could this grow into this big thing? But then when you're not, when you're away from them, the reality sets in and you're like, oh, this is actually something that is not just going to sort of magically occur. And, you know, we talk a lot on this show about love being something that you work on and you work with and to keep going and you work 
Like it's not, there's, you know, Allison and I are not people who believe in soulmates. We're not people who believe in love at first sight, I don't think. And so you're in kind of this very unique position where that, the way that you're thinking is, is encouraged because of the way that your culture dates, because you're dating to marriage. So you're not really, you're, and you, and it seems like you're supposed to get married really quickly. So you, the way that you view things is, is sort of in, I'm, I say like encouraged because you're supposed to get married really fast on sort of like, like you said, vibes, you know? I guess I, yeah, I mean, I think that it feels like a, a niche situation, but there are a lot of people all over the world and even, you know, in America that are are dating this way, dating yeah, with I the intention of, of marriage. It's just not obviously like not covered a lot in like Western media. Mm-hmm. But I think what I'm having interviewed some people who have had arranged marriages and, and things like I think what I would really advise is it's a combination. It's like on one hand, do I like being around this person? Mm-hmm. Do I like their vibe? Because I think we say vibe like it's a silly thing, but in reality, someone's vibe is actually like really important. Huge. Are they and positive? Like, Are they negative? Right, how like, do they make you feel? How you feel when you're with them? Are you able to banter with them? Like, do you have similar energies that pick up well? Like, is conversation flow? You know, so I think like on the one hand, looking at that vibe from just like sitting down with them, does it feel like a lifetime with this person would be a slog or like, mm-hmm. you know, it would just be so difficult for us to even find a, a, any sort of thing to joke about with each other mm-hmm. or, you know what I mean? So on the one hand, just that in the moment of like, and and there is a level of like chemistry there. And I think chemistry can grow and attraction can grow, but are we working with something, mm-hmm. right? And then on the other hand, I think that these dates that are meant to be, I think more to the point than yeah. when, than like more, you know, westernized dating is having really explicit, important conversations about what your marriage would look like. And so I think that the fact that when you went home and you thought about what they wanted in a wife and that did not align with you, that's good. Like you need to have like very direct conversations of what are your values? What do you want? If we were to be together, what would our life look like in five years? How quickly would you want us to have children if we wanted to have children? What role would religion play in our lives? And and it sounds like unromantic, but the reality is, is like you want to gather as much information as Uh possible about this person before making a big commitment. And then I think then comes in the step of, okay, I, I like their vibe. We're aligned on what we're looking for and how we view the world. And now I'm not necessarily in love with them yet, but I can see that there there is potential uh-huh. for that. And there that is the part where like it's a little different than the the culture, you know, game and I grew up with where like, oh, you fall in love first and then you get married. Then I think like it's allowing for I have enough of these things in a row where I, I feel confident that we can get there. It might be better than what we do because then you fall in love and then you're like, well, all these things that don't align actually is fine. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about that, obviously. <laughs> I think that the arranged marriage when the people involved have veto power and say is actually a really awesome system in a lot of ways. Because yeah. I think timelines can be different. You know, mm-hmm. family involvement obviously depends on the family. But I do think that there is something to the way that 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 marriage is approached there that I think is realistic. It's like, yeah, and can and can result in a lot of wonderful relationships. I also want to say that they tell you what they want in a potential wife. 
And I think you should sit down and make a list of what you want in a potential husband. They're not just interviewing you. You're interviewing them. Right. So you got to write down and you got to make sure like you can't just be like, oh, what they said sounds good to me. You have to write down and be like, OK, are, is, do they match my criteria, which I've made very specific? And I think also really something to pay attention to is is stubbornness. Right. Uh Like, you know, maybe you're not aligned on on everything from the get go. Very few couples are. But Uh is there an understanding to hear your point of view? Is there a willingness to an openness to explore things, to change things? You know, like it's just some sort of traits that will make it easier to live with somebody and, and and partner with somebody. But I mean, I also think like it can feel like, okay, now I've started this process where I'm seriously looking for my husband. Why haven't I found him yet? Yeah. And I think just like allowing for that, like there's going to be some non-matches and and kind of really have like a clear thing that matters to you. And then and then sticking with that um, of like, you know, if it's important to me that I'm with someone who will allow me to keep working, don't compromise on that. Yeah. But if there's something like, oh, it'd be really nice if they also love my favorite sports team and they don't, you know, yeah. <laughs> like. There's different levels of of deal breakers or things that we're looking for. Also, anybody could open up, fall in love, which you you deem embarrassing. And then anybody could get with someone and find out they're a completely different person. Years in. Yes. You know, it's also interesting. I wonder if you could like, because in your situation, you could probably talk to the parents or their friends or their siblings and get probably a fuller picture, honestly. So maybe do that. Yeah. And that's often kind of part of the process, I think. And so I think that is a really good point of like, maybe don't just take their word for what their life's like, but also kind of get a little info from the other people around them. Because mm-hmm. it's a really big decision, but also allowing yourself to know that like, sometimes people change, sometimes mm-hmm. people are misleading. And if they if that happens, it's not your fault. That's just a part of the game of picking partners. Yeah. And it's not unique to your situation. Yeah. But I'm so excited for you. What a what a fun what a fun time in your life. Yeah. Let <laughs> us know what happened. Please do. <laughs> and send us pictures if you get to the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's just between us, P-O-D at gmail.com. Up next, we've got a very important interview with our highly esteemed guest, Allison Herman. So stay tuned. to just between us it's time for the juiciest most scandalous most controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions this week on the show we have allison herman director of education at hope for the day she's a peer educator in mental health suicide prevention harm reduction and lgbtq plus communities hello hey how's it going thank you so much for joining us i know we have talked about suicide on the show before, but, you know, coming from the place of not having the level of background and education around it as you. And so we're really excited to sort of dive into just more awareness around the subject and hopefully provide listeners with some some tools for how to talk about it in a way that doesn't feel like they're doing more harm than good. And so to get started, I I'd just love to know, like, what what do you think that we kind of get wrong about suicide and and suicide prevention? Yeah, it's a great question. So many things. I so I've 
I've been working with Hope for the Day since 2018 in some capacity or another, and I started tabling. So I started volunteering, and then I eventually became the director of education in 2021. But something that was really interesting when I was tabling is that people assume that a certain diagnosis equals the option for suicide in the future. So I had a lot of people come up to tables and they're like, hey, someone I know has depression, so I'm going to grab some stuff for them. But then they would be not thinking about, you don't have to have a diagnosis to have thoughts of suicide or even um, attempt suicide. And also that it could happen to anyone because a lot of these things build. So it's very much a discussion about how does someone get to that place and realizing that there are a lot of things that we can do to proactively prevent that conversation escalating to a place where someone doesn't feel like they have any resources. Um, So I think that's the biggest one. And then the other one too, is that it's just it's not talked about at all. And I think a lot of people, because something's not talked about, it becomes very taboo and scary and difficult to talk about. And one of the things that I've noticed through the work that I've done is even mental health professionals and folks who talk about mental health all the time are still really uncomfortable with suicide. I did a chat with some social work students virtually, I think a couple of years ago, and their teacher brought me in specifically because everybody was still so uncomfortable about suicide. And it's just so interesting that it's just not discussed because I I think that people are already really uncomfortable with death. You add an added level of complexity, which is people don't understand suicide. A lot of people don't really understand where it comes from and everybody's brain is really different. So for some folks, they're like, oh, I could never imagine. But other folks, they're like, oh yeah, I can see how the connection gets made and how that um, scenario gets set up. But I think that those are some of the main things. I know we're on a podcast. My shirt says fuck stigma. And stigma is the biggest thing that really contributes to people not having these discussions because they're hard. And a lot of people feel like they get dismissed and minimized and invalidated when they do share how they actually feel. And then because of the bottling up of all those emotions and feelings, people feel like they can't be open. And that's usually where folks end up in a place where they're having suicidal thoughts and maybe thinking about what what happens next. And I think one of the things that is kind of confusing about talking about it is there's also this sense that when it's talked about, people then feel like they should do it. Like there is this weird connection of like when we cover, you know, celebrity people who have died by suicide, there can then maybe be an uptick in people attempting or completing. And so that sort of like sends this message almost of like, oh, when then we shouldn't talk about it at all. But that to me doesn't seem like the solution. So can you like touch on that kind of weird phenomenon a bit? Yeah. So the conversation around suicide informs what future conversations will be. So there's a really great resource that I've sent a couple of folks that's reporting on suicide.org. And it talks about how media outlets can safely report on suicide so that it does not create copycat scenarios or other things like that. And a lot of it has to do with how you disclose information. So when I read an article, I will see people talk about this person died by suicide. Here's some things about their life that we wanted to share. And there's a lot of really good guidance on there that talk about if you are making sure you're not disclosing certain details, making sure you're not sensationalizing it. Um, making sure that you're being responsible with resources that you're putting in that same article. So they'll talk about it and then they'll have like, oh, if this brought up something for you, here's some resources to reach for help. So I think that how you speak about it is the important thing here because there's actually a lot of studies that say if you talk about mental health, you talk about suicide, people are more likely to find resources and seek help. But if you are just talking about it in a way that's kind of like sensationalizing or making it a really 
glamorizing topic. It's not creating a space where somebody is then able to find resources and learn about how to be informed and how to support their community members. So I think that's the difference. And it's a small difference, but it makes a huge impact, especially the way that we're fostering proactive environments these days where people are being more open, like like y'all are on this podcast, with things that we just don't discuss. And I think that doing it in a responsible way is the key. And that responsible storytelling is really important. You mean certain details, like not what happened? Well, certain details, like you don't want to make an accidental how-to manual Mm -hmm. because that is what copycat um, experiences kind of happen from is that you've given them their whole plan Mm -hmm. and how they executed it. And you're also maybe triggering that individual by being really graphic with your description or you're sensationalizing how exciting like just all of these things getting kind of clipped together in a way that isn't isn't creating a conversation. It's creating a kind of a, a big narrative experience where that person is a little bit more informed about how to die by suicide and instead of, instead of informed of why suicide happened in the first place and how to seek help if you're feeling a certain way. So like I said, reporting on suicide.org is a really great resource and I definitely recommend folks check it out because those little details like what Gabe just said is really helpful to like just tweak the story just a little bit so you're still being honest, but you're being honest in a responsible way. What about interpersonally? Because this this was sparked by, we had a international question where someone didn't know how to disclose a family member's death where someone would say, oh, I'm so sorry, what happened? And the person didn't know if they should say, oh, they died by suicide. And then if what to say if there were follow-up questions. So these things that you're talking about with reporting, um, how does that change like interpersonally? Yeah, I mean, not everybody's as comfortable as I am, right? It's a big part of what I do every day. And I know that figuring out where your own boundary is on how much you want to disclose is the secret. It's basically having a conversation with yourself and you're like, all right, I'm comfortable talking about this particular topic. And you don't have to disclose things you don't want to. Um, So like interpersonally, a great example is I would be like, yeah, hey, this person died by suicide. I don't really feel comfortable discussing the details, but thank you so much for asking. And here's how you can support me. And just making it, again, we're going back to that support piece. You're trying to redirect the conversation so that people feel like they have additional information if they want it. And I think that will create a community of discussion instead of asking those additional questions that can be really difficult or even triggering. Grief when people have lost someone to suicide is very different because of exactly what you're talking about. It's that isolation quality. It's the fact that a lot of people find a lot of frustration in the way someone has died. So it's really good to, again, think about what you feel good about disclosing. And if you want to share, cool, but realize that that is informing how that person will ask other people in the future. So again, being responsible across the board so that people feel safe. We've talked about suicide a fair amount in school and it will sort of always be with this caveat of like you need to learn more about this (laughs) you know of like this we're going to go over this briefly but there's so much more and you you know it's such a complex thing and and something that I found interesting is is once you know that your client has you know suicidal ideation and is potentially at risk but is not at the level where you would have to intervene to the point of getting them inpatient treatment which is when someone's hospitalized, there's kind of like these two different things you do. And one is like pretty proven to be ineffective, which is like a 
a suicide contract, right? Where you're, where you decide, where you sign something saying, I won't do this. Oh my God. And wow. And, and in school, it's been like, that doesn't work. (laughs) Like people, like, it's like people do this, but it's like proven to not be effective. But then the thing that seems to be more effective is to kind of create um, like a safety plan. And can you kind of speak to that? Is that something that that you think really is a is a helpful resource with people who are maybe at higher risk? Yeah, I love safety plans. Um, that's one of the things uh, actually. So we have a we have a coffee shop in Logan Square in Chicago, and the manager of that coffee shop that has a lot of people coming into the space suggested we make a how to ask for help card. And I really appreciate that he did that because it's basically a safety plan. And if people don't know, a safety plan is okay, I'm feeling a certain way. Who should I talk to? So you basically make a list of people. And it's really important that you make a list of people instead of having one person that uh, is the only person you'd like to talk to about this, because we talk about this in our educations a lot. If that one person doesn't pick up the phone, you should have backup options. And you should realize that there could be a lot of reasons for that. And maybe that's not related to you. Um, And creating boundaries and creating spaces like that really help people have a network of connection and a network of support instead of just one person. But yeah, it's, all right, I'm feeling a certain way. What are my options? Who can I talk to? What's my list of safe people to to talk to? And then we have really good questions that you can ask people like, hey, my coping strategies are not working. I need some help finding some new ones, or I'm having a really tough week. Can you check in with me at this time or this time? Or I just am not feeling like I should be alone right now. Would you feel comfortable coming over or being on the phone with me? And creating a safety plan ahead of time before you feel like that can be really helpful because a lot of people don't realize that when you're in a suicidal ideation place or you're in a place where like attempting suicide feels very real, your logic center of your brain is gone. So you're not always going to make these very, what feels really easy in this conversation uh, decisions when you're in that elevated state. So safety plan is great because it's basically like, okay, I feel a certain way. Here's some coping skills. Here's some people to talk to. Here's what next steps look like. I've had several people in my life that go in and out of inpatient or have had experiences where that's just part of their experience. And even having like places they like to go, places they know are not LGBT friendly, just thinking about if we do need to enact further care, what that looks like. Because again, that person's getting a choice. That person is making sure that they are feeling supported in a way that they are still getting dignity and respect. And I think that's important here too, because Allison, you mentioned what they teach you in school maybe is not the most effective thing and making it human experience you can when it comes to safety planning, again, helps everyone. Everybody feels like they have a a setup that feels right. The safety planning might even include things like, oh, you have a gun in the home, we're going to take that gun out of your home. Or you have all these pills, we're going to take these pills out. Like, kind of looking at some of these things that make like the risk higher if you do enter that stage. And can we kind of talk about the role that like impulsivity plays in this sometimes where like there are some people who have really sought out that they're going to attempt and they have, you know, and and maybe they're giving things away and they're finally see like act, acting differently. They finally seem kind of happy right before they attempt and, and it's sort of a, a grand plan. And then there are other people where it really is just kind of like a moment where if they had just been able to get through that moment, they would have, but they have access to something like a firearm and then you have, you know, a disastrous outcome. I don't feel super qualified to speak on that, but I can answer that 
hotlines are really great to have de-escalation conversations because exactly what you mentioned before, that like removing high-risk access is really important. When we've had our educations with people who have access to firearms or people who have access to other ways of dying by suicide, removing that risk is really important. But I can't speak to the impulsivity because I just don't have the, the information I need to accurately say that. Can I get tough with you for a moment? Yeah. So I've had suicidal ideation my entire life, probably since the fourth grade, honestly, even younger. And I hear all of this stuff and it sounds good, but it's not ringing true to me and my experience largely. Like you're talking about a safety plan, a list of people. In the moments that I've felt suicidal, that list is irrelevant. I don't feel that I can speak to any of those people. I don't, I think maybe there's one person and I think I'm bothering them. Or I think, well, I don't want to scare people. I don't want, I don't want to tell, you know, my sister who I'm close to because she will come over and overreact or think that I'm, I don't want to be the boy who cried wolf or I don't want to do anything like that. So I have people in my life, but in the moments that I've felt suicidal, I look at that list and I go, I can't talk to anyone. I feel embarrassed. What if I take it back the next day and they're worried about me or they feel like, oh my God, like, you know, now I, now I have to watch you. And I think that, you know, you got, you're a person in my life that I have to walk on eggshells around. I've also felt like in my experience, calling suicide hotlines and texting suicide hotlines, they've been largely unhelpful. It feels impersonal. It feels like when they say a lot of stuff that I find very generic in that moment. And I also, like, I feel like there's, there's this piece of the brain that you've touched on that in my experiences of being suicidal, the ability to enact all of these things is non-existent. And also like getting rid of things in the home I'm not a particularly, this is not something that would occur to me when I'm in a good headspace. But in 2019, when I felt very suicidal, I didn't have any of that stuff in my home. But I, my idea was to drive my car off a cliff. And, I, and you have, still have a car. So like, I just feel like there's a lot of stuff that is talked about or that I read or that I try to do to like help myself with suicidal ideation. And some of it, I feel like, there's just, I feel very hopeless about. Yeah. And I appreciate you being real because I think that's where peer conversations come in. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear that the list for you is kind of short, but I, I agree that the list is short for a lot of us, especially a lot of us who are, who are LGBT plus like myself. I want to, I want to back up for a second and talk about the fact that I have a lot of the same concerns. And a lot of those things are the reason that proactive prevention and peer support is so valuable because you're right. Some of the things that uh, are available feel really impersonal. They feel very general. But when we teach in our educational programming, we're teaching people how to have human discussions with people they already know. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that like, I don't even know if there's people in my life that would react the right way. That is a big conversation I have in my educations where I'm like, all right, if you're supporting someone who is either approaching you or you're approaching someone else to be like, hey, you don't seem like you. What's going on here? And having a great 
line of discussion after that. And then I also have an education that's a part two to the first discussion that we have that even talks about exactly what you said, where it's like, please don't treat me differently after we maybe go through something. Believe me when I say I'm okay. And I think a lot of that has to do with education. It's being supportive and being like, you have to learn how to active listen. You have to learn how to not be judgmental. Mm -hmm. You have to learn that like, these conversations are not going to be Disney Channel moments. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a lot of people who take our education and go through that like, okay, Allison told me to listen, don't be judgmental, ask what questions instead of why questions, don't assume they have an illness, bridge them to resources that feel correct and safe. And we're doing that together. And then make sure that you're being a teammate, not pulling something through an experience that doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. But then through all of that, you have to be you. And I found that the more people I can educate, the more people that people have access to to actually talk to. Yeah. Um, even, even in my own life, I'm someone who lives with PTSD and I have a lot of up and down experiences that I, I don't tell everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I have friends who have been educated and do know how to have that discussion, it has gotten a little bit easier. But you're absolutely right. A lot of other things that people do when they talk about suicide is like, this hotline is here for you. They got you. But I think having a discussion on a personal level and getting your friends educated and building that trust is a lot more beneficial to society than just hoping that they remember the number, right? That being said, I've called the number and then I've ended up being so pissed off at the person on the phone that I just go to sleep and I don't actually kill myself. So honestly, who's to say it's not working? I mean... (laughs) I think public supports need a lot of work. Um, A lot of them are underfunded. A lot of them don't have uh, the resources that they would like to have. Sure. But in that way, it worked, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, their main goal is like to de-escalate. So depending on what de-escalation looks like, everyone on my team has called or texted hotlines to see what it's like so that we're not talking out of our ass. Like I said, you're right. It sometimes is really frustrating. Um, I've also found that like a really good example is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline that's been renamed to the 988 number, which is the crisis hotline, it's regional. So it'll see my phone number that I've called from a zip code out of Illinois, and I will get an Illinois person versus y'all who are in California, you're going to get a different experience than I will because it's based on each individual call center and the experience that that person has. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's where some of the disparity comes to, where it's just I wish it was more consistent, but that's why I'm really passionate about making sure that people are educating their communities and their circles, because that's who you're going to turn to anyway. A lot of folks who call hotlines call because they don't have a lot of other people who will understand, or they think that those folks will be better experts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the community support and the education that I do every day, I think is, I mean, I hope is what's going to change the world because the more people you can have on that list, the better off everyone's going to be. And I think you're right about that list being proactive with you or you being proactive with your friends. When you said someone saying, hey, are you okay? I think like I would be more open to that than, and I will say the list is long. There are people on the list that I know would care, but in the moment I go, they don't care. And it's lying, you're lying to yourself and your brain. But also I want to say that like, I wanted to talk about like with, with therapists and psychiatrists, I think I've been scared. You know, they say, oh, well, are you suicidal? And I'm like, am, but I want to be like, uh, you know, cause I'm like, I don't know what they're going to do. Am I going to have to be, go to the hospital? Am I going to pay? How can I pay for that? Like, are they going to force me there? Like, I don't know what I, I would feel pressured to lie to therapists and psychiatrists in those moments. Yeah. When we, so we have a specific program to talk about 
LGBT experiences in general. And I created a list of competency questions that I encourage folks to ask their therapist before they're in a space where they may feel that way. Or even just on intake when you're trying to figure out if your therapist is right for you. And I ask point blank, hey, if I have suicidal ideation, what happens? Mm -hmm. And I'm someone who didn't seek therapy until I was well into college um, because I grew up in a really small place. I'm queer. I, yeah, everything you said, uh, what are you going to do with me? I don't, I don't want to tell you, I don't want to get put somewhere I didn't agree to. But if you're upfront with your therapist and you ask those questions, some of that anxiousness will go away. Cause I, I asked my therapist and I was like, look, sometimes things are funky over here and I don't feel great. If I disclose that to you, what happens next? And she was very straightforward with me and I really appreciated that. And a good therapist will be able to tell you what the procedures and protocols are. And if you have that conversation, like I said, way earlier in your therapy experience, you're going to feel better about being open because I was, I was really impressed. Um, I mean, she's a trauma therapist, so I feel like she, she should know how to respond appropriately, but I was really impressed with the way that she kindly was like, here's the protocol. You don't live alone. So I know some things about you to help you out with safety planning and things like that. But I think that's part of this discussion too. You're describing all of the unknowns that just scare people into being honest. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. Great question. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. It seems like the goal is to avoid committing somebody if possible, because that can in itself be a very traumatizing experience. You know, it's so tricky, right? Because if your client does die by suicide, you are liable sometimes. And so it is this like very tricky situation for therapists where they need to do they need to do something and they need to be able to prove that they did something, but they also want to do what's best for the client. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this sense of like a take steps approach where like, okay, let's increase the amount of sessions that you're having. Let's maybe bring in your family members. Let's see if maybe we need to add medication. You know, like I think that there's maybe a shift away from like, okay, I'm just going to 5150 you the moment you say that you think about it. Mm -hmm. Also trying to get a sense of, are you just thinking about it or do you have an actual plan? Because mm -hmm. that is two very different things of like, do you know exactly how you would do it? Or is it just some an idea that you think about a lot to sort of like almost give yourself relief in and out? And, you know, and it is this interesting thing, I think, with our friends and people in our lives where it can feel like, okay, I'm seeing you know, some warning signs here. What do I do? And I, and I've given this advice and I don't know if this is the right advice. So I'd love to check with you is sort of like my first line of defense in that situation is to just not let the person be alone, where instead of necessarily checking them into a hospital, if that's something that they really do not want to do, just making sure that someone is, is with them through the crisis. Yeah. And I think that, again, that's why I think getting informed and being educated, which is a lot of the work that we do is really important because you're in a, you're in the right spot. You ask, Hey, is this person a danger to themselves or, or someone else? Are they having thoughts of suicide or self-harm? If they say kinda, or yeah, then you got to think about what that looks like and staying with them is the first step, taking them seriously and then figuring out what a crisis response looks like. Um, for some folks, Certain cities, like uh, a great example is Chicago has a program where they're putting, they have a team of people that they send for crisis calls. 
um, where you're going to get a medic and a social worker, like that kind of setup. But not every city has access to that kind of programming or hasn't gotten there yet. Right. So they send the cops. Yes. <laughs> Which is not awesome. But as Allison said, it's really great to even have a lot of things in place before you have to go somewhere because we live here and it's in a capitalistic situation where like things are expensive. Um, calling an ambulance can really be a lot. Mm -hmm. um, going to a hospital, I've had friends that are 5150. It's a lot. It's hard. At the end of the day, I always tell people that you want that person to be alive because you care about them and that's really important. And figuring out what steps need to be taken so that that happens is important. But like thinking about, are you not the right person to talk to? Should we call someone else and like make sure that they're the person that maybe can deescalate? Should we um, call your therapist? Should we call hotline together where I'm on the phone with you and you feel like you have someone else to like either bitch about how the call went after or, you know, advocate, advocate and check on you. Absolutely. And I think all of those pieces being put in place, again, is a much more friendly discussion than A equals B. Hopefully it goes well. And I think that's like an old school thought of how suicide prevention works we're trying to give people as much information as possible, use an individualized approach, respect people's dignity, understand that the world is complicated and people are complicated, right? Staying with people and just being there with them and living in the discomfort, even some of the discomfort that's already had happened in this conversation is a huge step because I think that's what scares people is they think they have to fix everything or they think they have to have all the answers and just being human and being with someone can go a long way. I know when I've been in dark spots that just having someone to sit with me and like maybe watch a show together, maybe the feeling will pass. Maybe it'll, it'll still be there, but somebody is willing to sit in the dark with me and figure out the best way to move forward. And that can really create a, a, a lot of hope for somebody. And what are some signs, you know, cause we all have friends who have depressive episodes and friends who will, you know, make some dark jokes and stuff. And like, when should you really like have your ears perked up and, and maybe be more proactive about someone you care about? Yeah. So there's a chart that I'm going to try to articulate um, since we don't have visuals. Uh, so what we're really used to is this box, this like long rectangle at the peak of a crisis curve. So that's when people are having suicide attempts, intentional overdoses, um, things that are showing that things are not going well. That is like the crisis stage that all of us are very used to like responding as a society. But where what you're asking about is what does escalation look like? What does that escalation into that peak kind of feel like? And in order to understand that, um, there's another concept that we introduce in our educations that's baseline. So that's what we call someone's random Tuesday where they're having a pretty good day. Things are going pretty well. And that's who you show up in a space as. And getting to know someone's baseline and then noticing when they're kind of moving away from that baseline is important. When we teach, I try not to be like, here are the six things to watch out for because you miss people. A lot of us are, especially a lot of us with trauma, are very good at hiding and not showing other people how we're feeling. So there are things like noticing if your friend is usually like, I'm giving a couple of examples, if, if your friend is like, a very snappy dresser and usually has like a really awesome outfit and suddenly they wear the same sweatshirt like three times in a row and you're like, hey, that's out of the ordinary. Or um, if you have somebody who's usually a very chill, quiet person and so suddenly they have a lot of energy and they're just doing everything and just full of a lot of ideas and, and interest, 
it could be they've had a change in their life, but it could also be they're going through some sort of manic experience. So noticing the shift in someone's baseline activity on top of the traditional signs of they're giving away things they really care about, or they are saying like they feel trapped and hopeless, those kind of language pieces as well. But I think I think the thing that matters the most is getting to know people, getting to know your circle and making sure that you're keeping an eye on those shifts in, in experience. Because even folks in my life are like, Allison, you're super high achieving. You're usually like really excited about all the projects you have going on. And you've just like been chilling for a little bit and you don't seem like you're excited about anything. What's going on? And I'll be like, oh yeah, I've, I haven't slept well. Things aren't going well. I don't feel great. And they're like, oh, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. Mm-hmm. So obviously the the main signs are really important, but also getting to know what's standard for someone will go a lot further as well. Because then it's it's a little bit, what Gabe was mentioning earlier, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because we also know <laughs> what you're looking for. So yep. using both tactics gets you a lot more success than hiding from the check boxes is something that I like to think about in my personal life. Because exactly what Gabe mentioned, we don't want to show you either. But I think mm-hmm. if we're working together and there's a community of trust, both pieces are going to work really well together. Do you think there's anything to the the stuff that's like, well, they no, it, it couldn't have been a suicide because they are so they were so happy right before. I think all of us have been really good at saying we're fine when we're not. Right. Like, I think that's the that's the answer to that question. Like, oh, I never would have. I mean, a lot of us are very good at pretending. And because of all the things we've already talked about, a lot of people feel like they have to pretend to get through their day. And that could be because they don't want to worry people or they they don't want to um, make it awkward. But I, I always think about that as like, even if I've had like a headache and then I go on to like a really important meeting, I'm going to be the perkiest, most put together person in that meeting. And if you amplify that in a mental health way, everybody's good at, at putting on a good face. So as long as you, but not everybody can keep it up the whole time. So Mm -hmm. that's why I'm saying like, if you get to know people on an individual level and notice those little shifts, you can check in and maybe improve someone's day by just like checking in and seeing how things are going. It's been helpful to me to say that stuff. Like if I was, I thought you were going to say you hop on a meeting and you go, sorry, I have a headache. Like last night I hung out with someone and I was like, I'm at a negative 12 battery. So, and then it allowed that person to go, oh my God, same. Can we go home? Yeah. (laughs) You know? So like, I think maybe to me, it's been helpful to sort of normalize being like someone saying, how are you? And me being like bad, actually. Yeah. And I've been doing that too, but you have to have space to do that, right? Like you have to be in a place where you, you can, I worked corporate America for like 11 years and I can't, can't. and I maybe would have not been put in a meeting or, um, Maybe somebody was like, oh, we should leave Allison alone for a couple of days. Like, I don't, I don't want to promote you. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's hard. That's what's hard with this is that you can say all these things and have all these right things. But sometimes it's like, you know, you just can't see a way out or you just are, I mean, even like the complications around terminal illness or like, for me, it's like a lot of being like, this just seems easier than trying, (laughs) which is hard. No, it's super hard. And I think that's why creating a community is the way to go. Because a lot of the conversations that are being had in current society is the individual approach. Here are things that you can do to make sure that you are taking care of your mental health. And those are great. 
But I think if the community is taking care of each other, it's going to get a lot further so that you don't have to assess your situation and be like, well, I don't know, that sounds like a lot of work. But if all of you are working together, it it gets easier. Like your shirt says, it's fuck stigma. Exactly. Before we move on, I just want to touch on the idea that I feel like remains rather prevalent, even though it's completely misguided, which is that suicide is selfish. And can you sort of talk about why people think that and how it's not true? Yeah. Um, I had a teenager ask me that the other day um, in the middle of my presentation. They, they raised their hand and they were like, look, before you go any further, I love all the things you're saying. I think suicide is selfish. And I'm like, OK, let's let's talk about that. Gen Z is bold and I love it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, I want engaging conversations like that because I feel like that's what creates this this dialogue where it gets easier. Yeah. It's something that comes up a lot. And I think reminding folks, having empathy for the person who is going through that experience is the first thing. And that can be really hard. I know a lot of people, when they lose folks, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're upset with maybe the person, but also the rest of the world too, like all the conditions that gets to a place where somebody feels like that's their only option. And I I think reminding people that like the logic portion of your your brain gets turned off during these moments. and the person is not selfish. They're looking for an escape from pain. And this is the thing that they thought was their only option in the time. So holding that space to give people space to realize that that person was going through a lot. There's a lot of things we don't know about their life. There's a lot of things they didn't want to necessarily share, didn't feel comfortable sharing, is a lot better way to think about that. Because as Gabe mentioned, in the moment, you're not thinking about other people. I just also want to add that sometimes people are thinking about the people in their life when they attempt, but what they're thinking is their life will be easier without me. And so I think this idea that people aren't considering the other people in their lives, like sometimes they, they, their brain is just lying to them to such an extent that they truly believe that everyone's life will be easier without them. And that I feel like is a piece that like, I only learned about really recently in terms of like one of like a very common thought for people who are her suicidal. And when you think of it that way, there's no selfishness there. If anything, there is like this thing of like, well, I'm helping by by taking myself out. I'm a burden. I'm a problem. You know, all those lies that that your brain can believe. Yeah. And I'll say based on working with people who um, have lost people to suicide or working with folks who have suicidal ideation, no one's better off. <laughs> like no one, no one feels good about the situation. Nobody feels awesome. So it's, yeah, I, I always like to reframe that question is somebody who died by suicide selfish as no, it's just a very complicated experience where everybody is trying to do the best that they can. And it's not always going to work out the way everybody wants it to. But I think holding that empathy and and putting yourself in someone's shoes, because what I've noticed too is, so I've listened to you guys for a super long time and Gabe and I have a lot in common. And I think finding that commonality of the thought patterns that you think everybody else also has is like really important too. Because I know a lot of people in my life that for some reason, have no mental health issues and uh, just don't don't think the thoughts that I think. And it's it's wild to me. But if there's someone on the other side that's also like, yeah, I, I don't have those things. I think we can find a lot more commonality when you start to understand how somebody else's brain works and how they're thinking. There are people without mental illness. Jesus Christ. 
That's like <laughs> yesterday, someone I was, we were talking to someone about LASIK and this girl was like, I've always had perfect vision. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's a thing? It is. But thank you so much for, for having this tough conversation with yes. us. Um, I think of it, course. I think it was overdue on the pod and, and we're so glad to have you. And now I have to ask if you want to play a very silly game show. I'm so excited. Like I said, I, I've always sat here and I'm like, how would hypotheticals go? And I'm ready. I'm so ready. <laughs> wow. Amazing. So for in case this is someone's first episode, hypotheticals is a game where you two will be my contestants. I'll give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And I determine if anyone answered correctly if I answer correctly, sure. you know, it's a little loosey goose once it comes to winners and losers. But okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You are on your honeymoon with your partner of three years when you get sick with food poisoning. You tell them to go enjoy the resort without you and you will meet up when you feel better. No. A few hours later, you find them at one of the resort bars. And they are making out with the hot bartender. No. When you confront them about it, they confess they were worried you getting sick was a sign that your marriage would fail. So they attempted to self-sabotage, but realize now it was just food poisoning and not a sign from above. So will you please forgive them? Would you stay with this cheater? No. Really? No. Just for a makeout? Not for the makeout. I'll tell you why. Because I have dated people. I I am a very literal person. It, uh, uh, an umbrella is an umbrella. A, a bird is a bird. That's it. <laughs> and I have dated people where they take every fucking thing as a sign. And I got to tell you, it's a bad way to live. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't want to be with someone who thinks that way. And for that reason, I'm out. Wow. Strong words. Allison, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, um, I'm also out, but for different reasons. <laughs> And that's the beauty of this game. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a really strong communicator if we haven't picked that up from what we've already talked about. And I don't know how I got that far into a relationship with someone where we haven't discussed, you know, that that's not a way to solve anyone's problems. So I would be disappointed that they're not going to give me enough credit to be like, hey, I'm feeling this way. Let's talk about it instead of just going and doing something that's super sabotage -y. So I'm I'm out. It's it adds so much stress to be like when you're sick and then knowing that the other person is viewing this as like a sign of something. And it would stress me out so much. Like if we were having an argument, my ex and I, if we were having an argument and we walked past a dead bird, I'd be like, oh, here we fucking go. Like it was going to escalate because they're going to be like, that's our relationship. And I can't live that way. But here's the question. Do you wait out the honeymoon? Because it's a very nice resort. No, they're kicked out. They have to go home. Oh, but you're going to stay. At I'm staying. All right. I like that. I'm just going to get a separate room where I can have my food poisoning all by, all by myself. And also like doing that, making out with someone else while your partner is sick really fucking sucks. Even as a poly, got to say. I agree with this, but I, yeah, I think, I think you should, you know, continue the vacation, send them home. Allison loves a vacation. I love vacation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our next scenario. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, six, is very lonely because they have a hard time socializing. To help with this problem, you buy an Elmo costume so you can FaceTime their iPad and pretend Elmo is calling to chat with them. Wow. This goes great until one day they catch you putting on the Elmo costume and realize they have been duped. 
They don't make another friend for five years due to a lack of trust. Are you a terrible parent? Oh, God. As a person who has trust issues, I'm I'm going to go with, yeah. I feel like <laughs> you got you, you to gotta, you gotta build that trust and breaking that trust, it's so hard to come back from. So are you against the whole plan of the Elmo or you're, you're a bad parent because you got caught putting on the costume? I think getting caught putting on the costume, like if this is a concern, more attention to care on that one is the important part here. Like you gotta, you gotta really commit to the bit and make sure that you're being careful all the way through. I think, yeah, getting caught was the bad part. I think the other thing is kind of nice. I was on board until, until you got caught, which like, okay, I was trying to think of what I would say if I got caught, like would I be like, Oh, I'm where I, uh, Elmo, I wear Elmo's skin. How do you, I I don't know. Like, what would you say to sort of cover for it? Like, no, this is a different Elmo. Like, how do you, Mm. oh, I knew that you liked Elmo so much that I thought I would dress as Elmo. Surprise. Like something. Come up with something. Yeah, Yeah. Well, more lies. Yeah. Come up with something, you know, but, um, yes. Also, like, I think, uh, parents don't realize that if you like I my mom betrayed my trust once when I was nine and I'll never forget it. Wow. You know what I mean? And I'm sorry, mom. But what, what'd she do? Oh, uh, she told her friends who my crush was. Uh, and then they they told their kids. What? Yes. And then the kids were like, we know who your crush is. And I was like, mom, that's brutal. But I would argue that's bad friends. I think. Absolutely. No, the friends were bad the friends. People. Yeah, absolutely bad go. people. And, and then she was like. I just we all just think it's so cute and like you guys are so cute together and I'm like you're you're ruining this for me. <laughs> anyway, okay. I'm not, I'm fine about it. So we're pro deceiving your child by pretending to be a a fake character, but we're against getting caught. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. I think you, <laughs> on the spot, you got to come up with something like surprise. I'm Elmo because you love him, and then um the real Elmo will call you later. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Our final game. Is this a date? You love power. No. Oh my God. <laughs> is that me? That's, I read is that it wrong. Me? I read it wrong. Is that me? Okay. I was like, literally like, I do love power. Continue. No, it's you lost power. Oh, well, I do love power. <laughs> you lost power in your apartment due yeah. to a storm. Okay. Is this a sexy story about you and Melissa that's about to happen? Well, we'll see. Because Melissa did lose power. At Slept at Allison's. We don't know what happened. We don't know, but this is a look. Not really, but here we go. You lose power in your apartment due to a storm. When you post about it on Twitter, a former colleague who you never really talk to anymore texts you and offers you their guest room for the night since they know you live close by. Is this a date? Are they hot? Yes. Has there ever been a vibe? Um, no. I mean, it's the guest room and not your room. So yeah, yeah. I think, I think we're creating enough separation here where I I don't feel like it's an invitation. It's just someone being kind. Maybe the storm rages and the power goes out there too. And then you sort of, you light candles and you've got mugs of wine and things happen. The question is, are you going into it with the expectation that just knowing what you know, is it a date? I like that they're hot, but I'm thrown by there's no vibes. Yeah, that's my thing too. If there's no vibes, I'm, mm-mm, it doesn't feel like a date. If yeah. there are vibes, then I would question it. So you're not going to bring your sexy pajamas? No, 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 no. I'd bring like middle pajamas. Oh, okay. Like not super <laughs> sexy, but not like, yeah. And I think I would see like, well, maybe there will be vibes. Ooh, yeah. A possibility of a date. Yeah. So I don't think it's a date. I think it is very kind of them. So I, 
well, it's a tough situation because they're then they don't want to be taking advantage of me and I don't want to be taking advantage of them by thinking that I, I OK, I'll say it's not a date, not a date. Turns out the guest room was the their walk in closet that's in their bedroom. And, and so it, they were trying to seduce you. Cool. Uh, cool. You should be safe during a storm. I am safe. All right. The walk-in closet has a door. No, because they love to look at their <gasps> shoes. No. Allison, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? They remove the door to the walk-in closet because they like to wake up and have the first thing they see be their really nice shoes. This person is an interesting person. <laughs> I will say the dynamic that ar- arose when Melissa stayed the night during the storm was that she was sort of our teenage daughter where she spent most of the time in my office and guest room and then like would just like kind of like pop out for like meals and stuff. <laughs> it was very funny. <laughs> she had a lot of work to do. I know, but it was, we did a whole bit around. It was a good time. Aww. Anyway, thank you so, so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about your organization and other um, amazing resources? Yeah, so if you go to hftd.org, there are a lot of great things on there. If you go to hftd.org slash find dash help, we have a resource compass where you can search any U.S. zip code for a variety of resources. It could be food assistance, legal assistance, mental health, dentist, whatever you're looking for, because suicide prevention is about a lot more than just talking to someone. And on that same website, you can find the classes that I've talked about. We have a great e-learning program and everything you need is up there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about vaginal health gummies. Yuck. between us it's time for topics x x x x x x x baby 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 <laughs> so considering we've been doing this show for years now i often run out of topic ideas so i go you know what i do you both know what i do right you go to the news or you look on twitter I go to jezebel.com <laughs> wow oh my god a blast from the past i'll go to other places too but i often i always start at jezebel.com i never go to jezebel.com for anything the heyday of jezebel i feel like really is not now i know it's it's a long time ago oh it looks completely different yeah i was like they know what's going on anyway and i think that that's where i found this oh it is it is this article about courtney kardashian's Mm -hmm. new vaginal health gummies Mm -hmm. and i thought we should talk about why that's uh horrible okay so what are they tell me so the product description from Lemmy's Instagram, which is like the brand, says, quote, vaginal health is such an important part of a woman's overall well-being and not talked about enough, which is why we are so excited to launch this. Give your vagina the sweet treat it deserves and turn it into a sweet treat. You know what they say. You are what you eat. And then that emoji with the tongue out and a wink. Okay. We combined real pineapple and vitamin C <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the power of clinically studied SNZ 1969TM probiotics to target vaginal health and pH levels that support freshness and taste. <laughs> okay, whatever I thought you were going to say, it's not, it wasn't, it, I didn't think you were going to say pineapple and taste. The old sperm of it all. Mm -hmm. The old making the sperm taste good of it all. 
So let's do a takedown. What bumped for you in that description? What are those letters that you said? S-N-Z-17, whatever. But the thing is, is since there's a TM after it, right? Trademark? Yeah. It's something that they created. Well, it's a clinically studied well, probiotic. Cl- I could set up a clinic. But I don't know if they did it. It could just be something that they said. From something called Sanzyme Biologics, an FDA-approved flagship strain of probiotic strains. Okay. But probiotics don't have really anything to do with, like, your vagina. Like, that's more gut health. So yeah. it has nothing. So, like. Yeah, gut health great probiotics do work if it's whatever but it, again that has nothing to do with your vagina okay. people take it for constipation and irritable bowel yeah, syndrome that's what i'm saying it's there is no good health. evidence to support these other uses this is from the national institute of health.gov also i love i did not know that the fda had a rating called fda not approved it's fda gras approved Mm -hmm. which stands for generally recognized as safe so it's not like an fda approval it's like an fda sort of like yeah probably but it's because they don't have enough money and resources to thoroughly test everything so it's like if it has like a general thing like general ingredients that are fine that's nothing harmful then that's what that is okay so is it vaginal health or is it I, you got to taste good for your man to go down on you. There's two different things happening here, though, right? Okay. Or actually three different things because they're saying one, like this is good for gut health, but they don't actually say that, which that's what the pri- probiotics are for. And so your bum hole is clean for the going down. Not on. necessarily. Okay. Might be messier it than might, ever. That's what I'm saying. Like it can clear you out, not really clear you out, but just make things regular sure, okay then the second thing is what they're saying about ph level which you can't change like your ph is what you're i mean you can change it like if you have like a yeast infection right right, right. but like that's the only time that you should be treating it if it's off and it's not going to be off like bacterial vaginosis yeah but it's yeah. not going to be off all the time right, right right and if you have any of those conditions you're going to take an antibiotic for it yeah. and then three the thing about it tasting better Sure. If you ate, eat pineapple, it will have a faint taste of citrus, but it's not. That's again, like, who cares? <laughs> oh, and Ma, I'm sorry, you take an antifungal, not an antibiotic, but either one, you take either one. But yeah, it's not going to taste. Well, OK. Well, the main problem with this whole endeavor is that it is promoting the false idea that the vagina by itself is disgusting. And it should taste like strawberries. Right. And that like something is wrong with yours and that you should therefore do all these, you know, like apply like all these like wellness fads and beauty things and like make it so it is somehow presentable to the world. When in reality, the vagina is like an amazing self-cleaning. Yeah. Like it's an incredible thing. And and we should just be applauding it all the time for all that it does. This is my cancelable take. If you're like a straight man and you're like, I wish the vagina tasted like pineapple. I don't like how it tastes. You might not like women. <laughs> like, like, I feel like there's this weird, like, wh- there's this weird misogynistic, like, weird thing of like, of like, it, like, oh, okay, so I'm attracted to cis women, largely, they'll say, but you don't like the vagina and you think that it's gross and it needs to look and taste differently. So what's the disconnect? 
I just think it's like immature and also like really harmful to to people like with vaginas and their confidence and their like ability to achieve what they want out of like a sexual encounter. And it's just like puts a lot of shame that doesn't need to be there. It's like when I was like in high school and it it like was like, oh, you have to shave everything or else they're not going to be interested. And I was like, then that makes just you feel like shit about your own body. But nobody's like, you got to shave your balls. Nobody says that. The guy that's on TikTok that has the ball trimmer does go around saying that. Well, he's selling a (laughs) ball trimmer, Melissa. Also, it's interesting to, again, be like equating vaginas with women. That bumped for me up top. But, you know, it's my own. I'm just like, oh, wow, what year? It's 2023. Bump for me as well. Yeah. Like, like I get that you're mar- it's marketing, so you're marketing to women. But I'm always like, yeah, but, like, you're missing out on a whole consumer base that you want to sell your sham to. But do you think non-binary and, and trans <laughs> men are going to fall for Kourtney <laughs> Kardashians? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the marketing to women specifically is a sinister part of it. You're right, because that's who will that's who will fall for it. Yeah. And all these gynecologists are coming out against it. Dr. Jen Gunter, who was on our show uh, a while Mm -hmm. ago, who's awesome, was quoted as saying anyone who suggests that your vagina isn't fresh or needs an improved taste is a misogynist and awful person. Fresh. (laughs) The word fresh. Oh, my God. Like it's a self-cleaning what is it? An organ? What's a vagina? Yeah, what is an organ? It's not an organ. What is it? Self cleaning part. It's like self cleaning body part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I just like flash back to just like being younger and exactly. and just like thinking that everything about my body was wrong and everything needed to be more appealing and I needed to somehow enhance it from whatever it was from the from natural, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it's so nefarious because this isn't two thousand and five, like. Like it, the the knowledge is out there that this kind of stuff is not necessary, and that it does harm, and then to still be pushing it is so problematic and, ir- and irresponsible. Yeah, they described it as a grift. <laughs> yeah, it is a grift. I'm just like can't can't relate. Like if I went down on someone and they smelled like pineapple, I'd be like I'm having a stroke. Like I just can't. Why would you want the what vagina if they smell to- like toast? <laughs> right. I'm like, why would you want it to smell like anything other than what it smells like, which is amazing. So I just don't get it. This is us doing an anti-ad. Do not buy these. <laughs> yeah, and an and, and, and ad for like, the, it's all great down there. Everything's great. Take it from me, a big old slut. <laughs> if you are experiencing like your pH balance being off, go to a healthcare provider and they will fix it. In, most of the time, if it's like really a fast. yeast infection, one pill. Right. Like there are times where you will notice that it's, it smells differently. Yeah. Right. Ba- and that can be a signal that you do need some medication. Mm-hmm. But your baseline of what it smells like is just your baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only if you notice like an abrupt change that yeah. like you should get it checked out. Agreed. What do we rate this this episode? Wow. I rate it 75 out of 74 really informative and realistic and authentic conversations that we had with Allison Herman. That's our longest rating yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll rate it 12 out of five. Get some gummy bears and enjoy your life. 
yeah, non-medicated or yeah. I mean you can get some okay. gummies, gummies that are, have some medication but if you just want a gummy like you can get a pineapple gummy and it could do the same thing that this does for the taste Okay. Yeah. If but you don't. wanna, if you wanna <laughs> eat pineapple, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and I will read it 62 out of 57 informative first dates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this has been such an informative episode. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you to Allison Herman for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Dog.